Wormwood is the new documentary from director Errol Morris. It's about a man named Eric Olson, who's trying to figure out what exactly happened to his father, Frank Olson. Frank was a scientist for the CIA who died in 1953 after falling out of a hotel window. According to the official story, Frank Olson was given LSD from a man named Sidney Gottlieb as part of a government project called MK Ultra. He had a bad trip, and he committed suicide. But Eric Olson does not believe the official story, and he spent his life trying to figure out what really happened. You kind of lose a baseline of assumptions because you're now questioning everything. In this three-part podcast, Errol Morris will talk with people involved in the project, including Eric Olson and the actor Peter Sarsgaard. But in this episode, Errol sits down with John Ronson. John's the host of the podcast The Butterfly Effect. He's also written about MKUltra and the CIA in his book The Men Who Stare at Goats. Despite their shared interest in the case, this conversation is the first time Errol and John ever met. Hi, Errol. Can you hear me? You are British, aren't you? <laughs> I'm, as, I'm as British as they get. Here's Errol Morris and John Ronson in conversation. They'll discuss cover-ups, LSD, and the new series, Wormwood. I wonder whether we should, um, just for people who maybe don't know anything about this, maybe just sort of summarize the story. Hard story to... There's so many different ways to summarize it. I always like starting with Eric as a little boy asleep in bed and being woken up. That always feels like the right story, the right beginning for me. Well, that definitely is a beginning. Yeah. Uh, his father has died, and he's being told for the first time. And it's the way in which he's told. Your father either jumped or fell out a hotel window 13 floors up in New York City. Eric, for years, would dwell on the vocabulary used to describe this. How do you fall out of a hotel window? If he jumped, was it a suicide? The accounts left out so much, contained so much ambiguity, that the problem became, what actually happened to my father? Right. And when he tried talking about it to his mother, she would snap at him, you will never know what happened in that hotel room. It's the perfect black box. What transpired in room 1018 at the Statler Hotel? And it's also a story. We forget about these elements in detective stories. Uh, an effort to cover up what happened. Uh, I worked as a detective private detective for many years. And one of the things that is always fascinating to a detective is not just finding things out, but recording the efforts of people to prevent you from finding things out, to cover things up, to misdirect, to confuse. And this is a story as much a detective story as a story of misdirection. LSD, which figures so prominently in the story because Eric's father was surreptitiously dosed with LSD, 
the LSD may turn out to be, I wanted to use it as a subtitle, is the LSD a red herring? Yes, because Eric came to the conclusion that it's possible that his father wasn't even ever dosed with LSD, that the cover story. And let me stop again and just give a bit of information for people who just don't. Just tell them to watch it. Okay. But I should just say this quickly. The, the next big moment was 1975. There was a story in the Washington Post that said, Suicide Revealed. And the story basically said that this man, Frank Olson, had been dosed with LSD in a secret CIA experiment, part of the secret programme called MKUltra. He was an unwitting guinea pig, and they wanted to know whether what, what it would do to a scientist's brain. That was the cover story. And the cover story went kind of crazy, to, to the extent that I think the whole mythology of if you take LSD, you might think you can fly and then you fall out of a window. I think all of that might have come from the whole Frank Olsen mythology. But all of this was further. None of this satiated Eric. Eric, at some point, became trapped in the story. He he couldn't escape it. And he decided, well, I don't know whether he decided to dedicate his life to it, but he did end up dedicating his life to it. It became, as you say, an obsession. I quote a line from one of my very favorite examples of film noir, Out of the Past. It's a line as a detective and as a filmmaker that has come back to me again and again and again, as Robert Mitchum is sitting in the back of a taxi cab, and he says to the driver, I could see the frame, but I still couldn't see the picture. I think, what a great line. They wanted to put us together because we have this one thing in common, which is that we've both spent a lot of time with Eric Olsen. How... Did you first hear of him? Most of what I do, I do out of desperation of one kind or another. <laughs> um, I had sold a project to Netflix loosely based on an MK Ultra story. Do you need me to explain this or would you do it for me? Uh, MK Ultra was a secret program that the CIA was doing in the sort of 50s where they were experimenting with LSD as a kind of truth serum. Uh, so they would have brothels in New York, right, with with uh, one-way mirrors, two-way mirrors. I forget how, how you say that. I was too young at the time to frequent any of them. <laughs> right. Well, you had CIA men sitting behind these mirrors watching these women spike the John's drinks with LSD just to see what would happen. And then they would sketch. They'd get out their sketch pads and sketch what would happen um, once these unsuspecting men were given LSD. I sometimes describe MKUltra as catnip for conspiracy freaks. Right. They just love it. It's because it's 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 like on it's a rare occasion when the craziest conspiracy theory you can think of turns out to be true. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Not just LSD, memory replacement, mind alteration, programmed assassination. It was some strange stuff. I, I guess the reason why they were doing it was because they figure, like the like the U.S. Army figures and like the Pentagon figures, you know, if we don't try this stuff out, no one will. 
this was at a time of very beginnings of the Cold War. If you like the Eric Olson story, most certainly the story of his father, Frank Olson, is a Cold War story. Frank Olson was an Army research scientist working on bioweapons. His death, his defenestration, one of my very favorite <laughs> words, became the subject of a 60-year quest by his son. So you found, so you were sort of searching around MK Ultra and you found the Frank Olsen story. See, all of a sudden I have this, this is a problem that I've had over the years. I have this urge to interview you. <laughs> I can't help myself. So I have to ask you, forget about me, how you first became aware of this story. I first became aware of it via uh, Sidney Gottlieb who was this shadowy, kind of zealot-like figure of, of the CIA. Uh, he keeps popping up in all of these very strange places. I was I was doing a story about, um, I wrote this book called the, the, the Men Who Stare at Goats, which was about the US Army's uh, kind of paranormal endeavours, how they were trying to kill goats just by staring at them and so on. And and there was this figure involved in this called Sidney Gottlieb. And the reason why he was involved was because he ran the CIA's secret psychic spying unit. He was their first commander. By the way, does it work the other way around? Can goats kill people just by staring at them? Well, one time I was told this master sergeant managed to kill a goat just by staring at it. But his heart got damaged in the process. So I said, was the goat psychically fighting back? And he said, no, because the goat didn't stand a chance. Uh, he said it's what's known in paranormal circles as sympathetic injury. So so I think the answer is sort of. It seems a slur uh, against goats. Well, you know, the reason why they chose goats, they, they had this lab at Fort... Bragg in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And it used to be called Dog Lab. And they were doing all of these weird experiments on dogs. But then it was determined by an army psychologist that we, we form, obviously, emotional bonds with dogs. And a lot of the soldiers didn't want to shoot dogs or try and kill dogs just by staring at them. So they switched to goats because it was determined that it's quite difficult to form an emotional bond with a goat. Which I know to be true from what I used to take my son to petting zoos and the goats would, like, nip you through, through the uh, fence. I have to respectfully disagree because I've always liked goats and I've always been fascinated by goat eyes. They have that strangely shaped pupil, which I find irresistible. So they used to shoot goats and then nurse them back to health and it was a way to teach the soldiers you know, how to kind of dress wounds in the battlefield. But once they had these goats on base, they decided, well, we might as well, we've got the goats. We might as well see if we can kill them just by staring at them. And one of the people involved in this, you know, all of this weirdness was this guy, Sidney Gottlieb. And I started researching Sidney Gottlieb and, and that's what took me to, to Frank Olsen. I want to ask you about Eric because one of the most interesting things about the story is Eric and his obsession. 
this is what he's done with his life, is trying to find out what happened to his father. I think when I first met Eric, like 15 years ago, when I was quite young, I might have thought, whoa, this guy, you know, he's obviously really smart um, and likeable, but, you know, whoa, he's pretty obsessive. But the older I get, the more I kind of identify with Eric's obsession. And now I don't think there's anything so weird about it. I, I think that's what we do. We become obsessed and, and it's a flaw, but sometimes out of obsession comes really good things. So I want to ask you, Errol, when, do you, do you identify with Eric? And if so, how closely? Or do you think that, you know, his, his obsession has taken him to a kind of unhealthy place? Well, the obsession may have taken him to an unhealthy place, but I identify with him completely. Eric, for me, is a kind of hero. I would not even call him a quixotic hero, although in many ways this has been a quixotic quest. The whole human species, human affairs in general, to me is a rather tawdry affair. But the fact that we pursue truth... I think gives it some dignity. Maybe not a whole hell of a lot of dignity, but some dignity. That we are trying to reach outside of ourselves, to learn something, to reach towards something, to understand something. Was this the most practical way to spend your life? Maybe not. Is it a noble way to spend your life? Is it something that I respect? identify with, yes, it is. When, when Galileo was asked by the Inquisition, you know, whether the earth moves, and he said it moves, it's not as if we wanted to ask Kellyanne Conway her opinion about it <laughs> uh, or to suggest that there might be alternate facts available. Someone was reaching for reality, for some truth about the world out there. And yes, I'll say it again, there is no higher, more noble aspiration. Every detective, probably every journalist, if you're trying to come up with answers, there's this dream of closure. I don't know how else to describe it that you have the definitive answers that you've been searching for. I made a movie, The Thin Blue Line, uh, where I was investigating a case involving the murder of a Dallas police officer. Um, and the man who was sentenced to death for that murder. And I spent about two and a half years working on The Thin Blue Line, maybe even longer, and I found out the man sentenced to death was innocent and his chief accuser, a 16-year-old kid, was the real killer. That's closure. But how often do you get that kind of closure in your life? Uh, very, very rarely. And take this case. Would I like as a detective, as a journalist, whatever you want to call me, maybe as a busybody, would I like definitive answers to this? I would. And we've come so very, very close. Um, at one point during Eric's you know, lifelong investigation into what happened to his father, he discovered this program called Artichoke, 
which, unlike MKUltra, MKUltra is kind of a fun story in a way because it involves LSD and, you know, oddness. There's nothing fun about Artichoke. Artichoke is about the CIA learning new ways to kill people. It's a, it's a dark and horrible programme. And Eric, when I knew Eric back in the early 2000s, he became kind of convinced that that his father's death was murder because he was going to spill the beans about artichoke. There are a number of possibilities. Artichoke is certainly one of them. There's another very strong possibility, not that the two are so distinct. In the early part of the 50s, we were at war. We all hope to God that this does not repeat itself in the current era. We were at war with Korea. And it was a violent, nasty war. Let's not forget the Cold War was triggered, enhanced by atomic weapons. We thought we were going to be the sole power in control of atomic bombs. That proved very quickly not to be the case. China and the Soviet Union got them as well. I knew a lot about World War II, a lot about Vietnam. I knew very little about Korea when I started this project. I certainly knew very little about how violent the Korean War was. We used more napalm in Korea than we used in Vietnam or in Japan. And so one recurring question, we were developing biological weapons, There is Frank Olson and a whole team of scientists at Fort Detrick working overtime to create new biological weapons. Did we ever use them? Was this purely theoretical? Or when you invest so much time and money in creating a new weapon, say, for example, like the atomic bomb, is there this need, this urge to try it out? Do I believe that Frank Olson was involved in making weapons that might have been used in Korea? I do. Here's the problem with all of these stories. I've been taken to task for this, I think, incorrectly. We forget about history, one very important feature of history. History is perishable. History depends on our evidence of the past. But what if someone or a group of someones decide they want to destroy evidence. They want to cover up things. They want to hide things. They want to elide things. Then what? What if crucial documents are utterly missing or have been destroyed? And the story of the 50s and early 60s is very much a story of government cover-up of evasion, of elision. So what can I do? Poor little me, what can I do? I can dig and dig and dig and try to find out new facts and new evidence. But I also can tell a powerful story about a cover-up, about the desire to have no one ever, ever, ever know if Eric's father was murdered, and I believe he most certainly was, who ordered it and why? It's a story of, if you like, 
the outer limits, the frontiers of investigation, of what it's actually like to pound your head against a metaphorical concrete wall and see what you can come up with. I remember Eric telling me about whether Sidney Gottlieb, when he was asked why he destroyed so many papers, his answer was that as a keen environmentalist, he was sensitive to the dangers of paper overflow. That's mm. why he destroyed the documents. Um, you know, I'm going to tell you something that I, I don't believe I've ever told anybody before. Um, when I was, and I, I, when I was speaking with Eric and piecing together the story, we talked to somebody from, from the CIA, and I, and I can't for the life of me remember who it was. But what this person said to me was, it was suicide. You know how Eric is a little bit funny. Well, so was his father. He was sort of saying that if I felt that Eric was a bit obsessive, so was his father, and that's why his father committed suicide. But given that it almost certainly was murder, this person was lying to me. Wait a minute. This is the first time someone has ever lied to you? It's always funny, you know, but I, when I catch somebody in a lie, it always comes as a bit of a surprise to me. Does that explain anything to you? No, no, it's no. I didn't, I didn't believe it at the time. It, it wasn't evidence either way. But no, I, don't, I, I, think it's, I think it's a lie. I think the guy was lying to me and hoping that it would somehow influence the way that I told the story, that I would make the story more about Eric being a kind of erratic figure, which, of course, you know, I didn't because I have nothing but admiration and, and respect for Eric. I've often thought, of course, I n never had the opportunity to meet Frank Olson other than in the hours and hours of filmed footage that he took of his family. Mm. And by the way, the existence of all of those home movies tells me something. Maybe I'm reading into it, but it tells me that here was a man very much involved with his wife and his children. Mm. You don't take hours and hours and hours and hours of home movies could there have been an obsessive quality to Frank Olson that mirrors the obsessive qualities of his son? Doesn't seem to be that far of a stretch. But there's also a very moral element in Eric. There's a feeling of outrage, justifiable outrage. How could the government do this to us? How could they dare lie repeatedly to us and cover up what they had done. Can I just say something else about the possibility that Frank Olsen shared Eric's kind of obsessiveness? That man on the phone said to me, that's evidence that he committed suicide, but that could just as easily be evidence for the reason why he was murdered. Because let's just say that, you know, let's say that Frank Olsen was involved in biological warfare, was possibly even involved in interrogating people to the point that they died and had a crisis of, of conscience and was going to tell the world and that's why they killed him. That, you could argue that the, the personality traits that you see in Eric, these kind of heroic, moral, obsessive qualities, 
may have been the qualities, the very same qualities that got his father killed. I completely agree. Am I slavishly agreeing with you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so in a way, meeting Eric, you are meeting Frank. You're meeting some part of Frank. Yes, I believe that's true. I should tell you, I'm not done with this. I feel I'm just warming up. There's more to come. My guess, by the way, is that you and Eric probably both already know, and you need to just find a way of saying it. Indeed. I love that word so much. Thanks, Eric. It's been a great pleasure, John. That's John Ronson and Errol Morris in conversation. Be sure to check out our other episodes, featuring actor Peter Sarsgaard and Eric Olson. Wormwood is now available in six parts on Netflix. This podcast was produced with help from Pineapple Street Media. Thanks for listening.